Coming up on the Audible, we are live from the sites of both the Fiesta and the Peach Bowl playoff games. We'll also be getting into an unusual coaching hire at Connecticut, some of the other bowl results, and more on today's Audible. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. I know it's been a little while since our last episode. We had to get through the holidays and then both of us traveling to our respective sites. I'm coming to you from lovely Scottsdale, Arizona. And Bruce, you are in Atlanta. How's it going there? It's plenty lovely here, Stu. As we're taping this, it's Wednesday, earlier in the day, Lane Kiffin. Not media day, but it was one of the availabilities where you'd have five offensive players and Lane Kiffin speak. And so there's never a dull moment when Lane Kiffin is around. You know, I've seen on described on Twitter and I've heard from some of your fellow reporters there that the Alabama media is basically using the opportunity to ask the Washington players, what's it like to play in a game where you might die? Yeah, I don't know if it's quite to that level, but, (laughs) you know, you'll stand there and you'll have like a back and forth with a Washington player. And then all of a sudden, you know, somebody will come over from one from an Alabama uh, site or or uh, a newspaper and then. They will just kind of go right into who's the scariest player on the Alabama team you've seen on film. Who's the you know, and it'll be one of those where I think it's more a case of the media members who are not covering Alabama are probably more tired of it or, or like kind of notice it more than the players do. What what's interesting to me is how it plays with the with the Washington team that you have Chris Peterson who is a master at at kind of managing the media and getting players to be focused and not worry about the external. And yet, you know, there's a lot of teams, you see this where players love to embrace being the underdog. And so, you know, one of the things I'd ask these guys were, you know, you're a 14 point underdog. Would you, you know, would you even rather be a 21 point underdog with all the people doubting you? And you get some of that where they're noticing it, but they say, ultimately none of that's going to matter once we play. And, so I, I think it's more becomes a it becomes just kind of like an, a nuisance to maybe the people around them just hearing, you know, they'll just throw out like jersey numbers, you know, as if they're talking to them. And, you know, each guy. It's not like it was. It's not like Washington doesn't have good players on their team. It's just the numbers of them that that Alabama certainly has. I think just kind of gets to it, and even to the point where where you're around Alabama players. I heard somebody say to Reuben Foster talking to him like he was underrated and then somebody else pointed out well you know the guy did win the Butkus award it's not like he was completely under the radar but there's the feeling of of it's just this Alabama machine that's almost like faceless to some degree I gotta tell you the underdog nobody believes in you everybody's doubting you thing is not unique to a game with a 14 point spread Clemson is a three-point underdog in this game and they are being asked questions about being over, being doubted and being overlooked. Why do you think that is? Is it because there's so much Ohio State media there? Or like, what's the genesis of that part of it? I mean, it's specifically in Clemson's case, probably because they are actually the higher seed. So maybe there's some feeling of disrespect that you're the number two seed, but you're the underdog. But um, I don't know. I don't know why everybody gets into that angle. Now, I will say for my story that I'm writing to go up on Thursday, I kind of lose track of what day of the week it is. When you're at these bowl sites, mm-hmm. same. It's more. It's not necessarily about this. Who's the underdog in this matchup? As much as this notion, this widespread notion, I hear it all the time that 
Well, nobody, you know, why are they even playing the playoff? Because Alabama's just going to run away. Alabama's just going to destroy everybody. Nobody can beat Alabama. You've seen some of our colleagues write stories this week, how to beat Alabama. And it's like, you know, the two teams playing in this game, one of them, Ohio State, beat Alabama in the playoff two years ago, and the other one lost by five points to them in the national championship last year. This is not exactly, you know, a MAC team and a Sunbelt team that the winner has to go lose to Alabama. Well, can I play devil's advocate, though? Um, I would argue that this Alabama team is much different than the one Ohio State beat two years ago. I certainly think Ohio State is not the team that beat them. So our friend and colleague Andy Staples had visited Clemson last week, and I talked to Andy for a little bit about this. And he would he made the case he thinks Clemson's going to win that game. I, a lot of it, I think, has to do with Deshaun Watson. To me, he's the he's the biggest uh, curiosity of me in in this season because we expected that offense to be sharper than it's been, certainly with Mike Williams back after missing all last year. And he's the one who I think, because we've seen it before when he was at his best, could give Alabama's defense the most issues. Even with Alabama, and I wrote about this a little bit on Tuesday, Reuben Foster lost 20 pounds. There's a lot of guys who are who are playing playing better and moving better because they've shed some weight in part to be able to handle more spread out offenses and, and more up-tempo stuff. Um, you know, with that said, he's the kryptonite to Alabama, you know, who's the 10,000 pound gorilla in this playoff deal. I mean, do more people think Deshaun Watson's going to be the store? Yeah. You know, Deshaun Watson spoke, um, here this morning, the, the day that we're recording this, you know, you, he got a lot of questions about the NFL because, there's some overlap between people who cover Ohio State and people who cover the Cleveland Browns, who obviously need to draft a quarterback. So he's starting to get questions about that. He didn't really get questions about the interceptions so much. But, um, you know, talking to Tony Elliott, the co-offensive coordinator, and, you know, and some of the other offensive guys, you know, you and I have been talking all season about the interceptions, and, and now you're going against an Ohio State defense and their secondary, and Malik Hooker in particular, who have thrived on intercepting quarterbacks, returning them for touchdowns. I don't, I, I'll be interested to see if they approach it differently than they normally would. I kind of think they won't. I feel like Clemson's whole philosophy is, you know, first of all, they're going to try to run the ball, but mostly they want to take advantage of all those receivers and they're going to take shots down the field. And the way Tony Elliott put it is we're hoping we'll win some of those, as he put it, competitive matchups. You know, it's going to be our great quarterback and our great receivers against their great DBs and, and hope for the best. Uh, so we'll see. You know, one of the reasons I'm picking Ohio State is I don't like that matchup of um, that philosophy or Watson's track record this year against those Ohio State DBs. But he did play a lot better over the last part of the season. And so we'll see, you know, anytime, anything with these bowl games, right? You don't know what the three, four-week layoff, how, how they're going to come out and look different. I remember Hunter Renfro hadn't done much anything and then suddenly broke out and had a huge game against Alabama in last year's playoff. Now, following up on what I tried to get at before, so this game is really interesting to me, but it's even became more interesting when I saw the quotes from a Clemson defensive back basically calling out uh, JT Barrett and just saying we've played better passers, which statistically is true. I mean, the ACC is loaded with good, with, with good quarterbacks, uh, how do you think that angle is – how is that angle playing out there? Uh, the Ohio State guys didn't really bite on it. <laughs> you know, this conversation is making me realize just how much of Bull Week is 
everybody waiting for one person, one player to say something remotely inflammatory and then getting everybody else to respond to it. I mean, look, he's right. They have played better passers. But I'm curious, this notion, and he's certainly not the first one to express it, that JT Barrett's just not a great passer. How do you feel about that? Because this guy two years ago was a top five Heisman finisher. He gets hurt. He loses the job to Cardell Jones. And I feel like ever since then, he has not necessarily restored the acclaim that he had that first year. Look, I don't think he was ever a great passer. I think he was a good passer. But I think there was real issues with his being able to hit downfield. They've struggled all year with it. Yeah, he's got a you know a good TD to interception ratio, but he completes in the in the low sixties percentage wise. I also think it's interesting is as much speed as Ohio State has on its offense. They have struggled to, in the last two years to develop a guy a vertical threat to get downfield in the passing game for some reason. So I think as awkward as maybe those words were from the Clemson you know defensive player to hear them uh, and certainly to read them, I think there's some merit to it. I don't know why I, I don't know why you would put that out there because it's certainly I don't know what you gain from saying it. But uh, I mean, do you think he's a great passer? For me, it's hard as a lay person, if you will, to separate how much of it is him and how much of it is like you just said. That national title team where he was the starting quarterback most of the season had Devin Smith, Michael Thomas, both those guys high round draft picks, and Evan Spencer, who was a very underrated receiver who they would often refer to as their MVP. This team, I mean, most people probably can't name any of the Ohio State receivers this year. It's not a very distinguished group. Noah Brown had that big game against Oklahoma and that was like barely ever heard from again. So how much of it is Barrett and how much of it is that he just doesn't have great receivers to work with? Well, I don't know. I mean, like getting back to your point, I mean, do you think he's one of the one of the five best passers in college football? Uh, no, that would be hard to would well, you think he's one of the that. 10 best? I, I mean, you can be a really good college quarterback and not be a great passer. I mean, I think that I think he's a really good college quarterback. But I don't think he's a great passer. Well, you can also win a national championship without a great passer, as Alabama did just last season. I don't think anybody would last year would have said Jake Coker was one of the top five or ten passers in the country. You know, if you play really good defense and you can run the ball. And that's if Ohio State's going to win this thing, that's going to be how they're going to do it. I don't think they're going to magically turn into a great passing team overnight. I think if Clemson's going to win it, Deshaun Watson's going to have to have a big game. It's a little bit different between those two teams. With Alabama, you know, you're there. Uh, Jalen Hurts has been the story all year. I did not realize how explosive Alabama's offense was. I just happened to look up the stats just now. They're averaging 6.6 yards per play. That is a very high number. How much of it is Jalen Hurts? How much of it is the rest of that offense? I think he's a part of it. Look, right now, Lane Kiffin earlier today said, you know, he thinks he's a future first-round quarterback. Uh, you know, Jalen Hurts is, is not a small guy. He's 6'2". He's very athletic. He's very smart. Uh, I think he fits well in the scheme of what they're trying to do. But, you know, a lot of it is they are such a physical run game uh, that I think it all kind of goes together. And they have teams on their heels. I mean, they hit big plays because they have really big, fast, athletic receivers I'm across the board. Um, you know, this is an interesting little side note. They had a player who caught basically a hundred passes in the Mac in 2015, Garrick Dieter at, at, at an explosive bowling green offense. He transfers as a grad transfer to Alabama and he's such a complimentary piece. 
you know, a tenth of the production that he had in the Mac. And it just shows you how much firepower that Lane Kiffin and Nick Saban have on that offense. Okay, going to the other side of your matchup, when you talk to the Alabama coaches, players, who who do they mention the most in terms of the guys that impressed them most or scared them the most from Washington? But Buda Baker's name comes up a lot. I think they're impressed by the cornerbacks also for Washington. I think people know John Ross, the receiver for UW, is, is dynamic and is, you know, if he gets in the open field, they're worried about that. We don't know what we're getting with Jake Browning. I think they're very respectful of him. But he did not play well against USC and he did not play well against Colorado. And those aren't that, you know, far removed. I'll tell you another impressed by, and I've heard this from from Alabama guys in the last couple of weeks. They're impressed by Joe Mathis, but Joe Mathis isn't playing this game. You know, he's the edge rusher who who can beat guys one on one and his name comes up a lot. Um so they're guys who flash on the on the Washington defense. But I don't believe Jake Browning is going to thrive against the Alabama defense in this setting, in part because he's, he's really struggled down the stretch. And also, this is a great Alabama defense. But as some of my, some of my friends down here in the media have pointed out, Alabama has, has not played very many good quarterbacks this season. I mean, Chad Kelly's talented, but it's not a deep group if you look at who they played this year. It's not. I mean, they played USC when it was Max Brown was a quarterback. It's just a bad year of quarterback play in the SEC. So what's the formula for Washington to beat Alabama? How does it happen? You know, I think Jake Browning has to be – I don't think he has to be perfect, but he has to be about as he, as good as he's been. I think they know that they have got to – Get some turnovers on defense, whether that's getting Jalen Hurts rattled and having him throw some picks. And ultimately, I think the biggest thing, in addition to Jake Browning playing a you know a near flawless game, is for their linebackers to be able to hold up in the run game. Because I think their defensive line has some big, athletic, you know, supersized guys who I think will respond. It's the linebackers. You know, they're down to some you know third string guys on the edge. I that's what I think that they're going to be really vulnerable. All right, well, let's get to the part that the people really want to hear about. I, I think people get bored by too much X's and O's talk. I could be wrong. Maybe you can give us the feedback at theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Where have you eaten in Atlanta? <laughs> uh, Dan Wolken, who lives here for the USA Today, gave us a great tip to Superica or Superica, which is a Mexican place that was really terrific. Uh, the place we had at last night, it was okay. I mean, it was good. It wasn't great, but it was good. So, so far, so good. Um, I could do without eating much more Chick-fil-A. They serve it at breakfast and it's all, you know, pretty much all you see. Are around you serious? Bowl. That like, they serve it at breakfast? Yeah, they the, do. But is, is there something else or the media breakfast is Chick-fil-A? Uh, the media breakfast was like chicken biscuits and biscuits and biscuits and Are grits. Are yeah. I guess I would be having to order room service then. Yeah, you'd you'd survive still. Um, when I thought, theory. let's get to uh, the big coaching news of the week, and that's Randy Edsall. I know you missed him. Is back at UConn. How do you do? You like the hire? I do. I mean, he's the high point of recent UConn football history. He did a lot better than anybody that came after him. He understands that place, and yes, it did not end well. Most times, it doesn't end well when a coach leaves for somewhere else. But his his was particularly bad with the. Sending the text, I believe, the morning after the Fiesta Bowl. 
But you know what? People get over that. Uh, if Bobby Petrino can go back to Louisville, Randy Etzel can go back to UConn. What do you think? I think almost everything, you know, until you brought up Bobby Petrino, I think everything, I agree with everything you said. Um, you know, look, after the Bobby Diaco debacle and just he was so off the wall, I don't think stability is a bad thing there for them to go to. Now, you know, if he brings an offensive coordinator who is a little more dynamic than what, you know, what they're used to now, I think that would help. Um, yeah, I got asked this by somebody at the Hartford Current earlier today. Is this a similar job to what he left? And it's I, I mean, I do think it's a worse job because they're even further removed from, you know, there was the BCS model and where they are now is it's in a tougher place. You have less access. I think they're actually in a league where they're even more poorly positioned, even though they're further in the margins. I think the fact that they're in like a league with Houston and other programs like that, you know, USF, UCF have more momentum and they're in a better place geographically to recruit. I think it's a tougher job he's got now, but you know, it's the reality. You're UConn football. You're not UConn basketball. And I think you got a guy who wants to be there. And I think it's a pretty good hire, like you said. You know, this is going to really date myself, but uh, I lived in New York at the time. I went to UConn and did a story the year that they first moved up to the Big East. And if you remember, it was immediate. They went from FCS to the Big East. And First of all, everything was in trailers. They didn't have like an actual football headquarters at the time. I went to his press conference and he was kind of explaining to the reporters how you qualify for a bowl game. Uh, and he had a good run there with, uh, uh, shoot, the quarterback. Um, Dan Orlovsky. Dan Orlovsky. Yeah, I mean, they had a great quarterback there at the time. They had a good run then. They went to bowl games most years. You know, the year they went to the Fiesta Bowl and played Oklahoma, it was, I think they were 8-4. and four, So it wasn't like a dream season record-wise, but they did go to a BCS Bowl. So I think that there's probably, without knowing all the details of what their financial financial situation is, I would have to imagine that it's a better equipped place to win now than it was then. But like you said, not in a BCS conference, in the American, where you can have, you can be Houston and, and you know, do everything that they did and still be on the margins. Uh, but the part I, I guess I don't necessarily agree with is, you know, they were in a conference at that time with Cincinnati, Louisville, um, USF was already there. I mean, wouldn't you say they were playing tougher competition then than they are now? Uh, I don't know. I don't think it's that much different. I mean, I think it's a little, I think on the top end it is, but I think they're, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I don't I know. I mean, they're in a conference now with Tulane and you, you name, like, I mean, there are some good programs in there, no question. In fact, one of the puzzling things to me is that for the second year in a row, the American, which gets a lot of acclaim and teams pop up in the top 25, just got completely dusted in both. How much do you think that has to do with a lot of the coaching turnover in the conference? I mean, Temple, obviously, you know, that's a factor when you have staffs that are picked apart. Yeah, I mean, somebody put up a list that that all everybody but Navy in that conference has changed coaches within the last two years and most now within the last 12 months. Yeah, it's the cradle of coaches, as I've referred to it. Cradle of coaches, but it's going to be very hard for them to maintain stability and be good year after year with that much turnover. Yeah, that's, that's something worth keeping an eye on. UConn, of course, is a prime example of that, but in a different way. They, their coaches haven't been jumping to other jobs. They just Paul Pascaloni was a dud. Bob Diaco is one of the stranger... 
I don't, I don't know that many people listening to this would even know anything about him. Um, he's been described as the Michael Scott of coaches, referring to the uh, Steve Perel character from The Office. He had some bizarre press conferences there, and he was the one that created the civil conflict trophy with UCF. Yeah, it, it obviously didn't work. I'm curious as to who hires him as a defensive coordinator because he did a pretty good job as a defense coordinator at Notre Dame. Uh, you know, look, Pat Narduzzi could have had that job, turned it down. Obviously, it was a good career move because he's at Pitt and wasn't on on the UConn train. Um, I imagine if he was at U- a UConn, it would have worked out better than it did for for uh, Diaco, but that's another story. So, Speaking of former Brian Kelly assistants, you just reminded me. Uh, what do you make of the uh, – everybody seems to be jumping ship from Notre Dame. Well, I mean, look, some of it. Mike Sanford left to go become a head coach. Right, I don't right. think that's – you know, Brian Polian, who was a really good assistant under – you know, was probably as good an assistant as, as Charlie Weiss had. He went back there. I think Brian Kelly got a good hire in Mike Elko as a defensive coordinator. You know, we'll see what happens with Mike Denbrook, I guess – you know, there was reports that he was going to leave to go be the Cincinnati coach. And then there was reports that saying that's not been decided. My guess is Brian Kelly wouldn't mind if he landed the Cincinnati job. But who knows how this is going to ultimately just, fly but, out. But let's just think about that now. You're talking about Notre Dame's offensive coordinator leaving to become the offensive coordinator at Cincinnati. That's me. Yeah, but he remember Brian Kelly was the play caller. I mean, that thing was split. I mean, Mark, Mike Sanford went in there to to you know, to handle things. So he was the quarterback's coach. I'm not sure how much control Mike Denbrock actually had at this point, you know, so, and we'll see. Does Brian Kelly become the, uh, basically the offensive coordinator next year? No, I think he will hire somebody to be more involved as the offensive coordinator than what he has now. But he'll still be the play caller? Uh, I'm not sure of that. Hmm. Well, I mean, that's interesting. That's going to be a, a basically a because you already fired Brian Van Gorder so, and got Elko. So that's basically a complete changeover. But you would agree that's probably ball. an upgrade, right? With Elko? Absolutely. Yes. If you're – I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I'll give you a hypothetical. If you're Brian Kelly and you can hire, let's say, Mark Helfrich as your offensive coordinator and you get Mark Helfrich and, and Mark Helfrich, Elko, and Brian Polian to be special teams, I think you'd – if you're a Notre Dame fan, I think you'd feel probably pretty good about that. I do too, and I think I think they'll bounce back next year. You know, I, I think everything that could go wrong went wrong this year. Brian Kelly mismanaged a lot of things, but I don't think they became that they went from being a ten-win Fiesta Bowl, having the talent to be a ten-win Fiesta Bowl team one year, to being just completely barren of talent the next. You got to think there's still talent there, and that they could turn things around next year. Mm-hmm. All right. There's been a lot of weird bowl results so far, and I don't want to dwell on it too much because we're moving into the more important games, but give me the one one bowl result so far that just makes no sense to you. It happened last night, and it was Baylor and Boise. Baylor, the wheels had seemingly fallen off the wagon. Um, you know, I felt like I watched the game in a bar and then I watched part of it, you know, when I went back to my hotel room. I felt like every time I looked up, there was a personal foul on Baylor. Yet they won the game handily. And Katie Cannon, who's a fantastic player, had a huge game. But I I don't know. I mean, my confidence points on that game and on the Wazoo-Minnesota game, considering how how depleted Minnesota seemed to be and all the drama around that program, um, I didn't see that coming. But just, you know, look, we both talked about how much Baylor seemed to have fallen apart. 
I mean, did you see that coming either? No, uh, that it's funny you mentioned that about the bull confidence points. I'm looking back. We had to send that a list to our editor at one point. Okay, my number one or number forty, however you want to look at it, was Mississippi State. Mississippi State needed a blocked field goal to beat the <laughs> six and six MAC team. Um, number three, Washington State. Washington State scored twelve points against a Minnesota team that almost boycotted the bowl. That was, was going to be my answer to the question I just asked you of the most puzzling one so far. Uh, number six, Middle Tennessee State. Middle Tennessee State got housed by, uh, by Hawaii. Number seven, Boise State. So, yes, yeah, some of this is just bad predicting on my part, but it's mostly you just you can't predict bowl games. Like you cannot – nobody could look at the Washington State-Minnesota matchup and say – Oh yeah, you know that's that's ideally suited for the Minnesota defense to dominate. Well, yeah, I mean, look, uh, just when you think you you have you have a good feel for things, stuff like that happens. I assume your number two confidence points was Alabama Washington. Correct. Yeah, same. Yeah, same here. Well, and then I thought I had this one higher than I did. Number twelve was Houston. I thought uh, Houston was going to take care of business against San Diego State. And it was the exact opposite. So it's been a lot of that. Hey, it's another school that is in the middle of a coaching change. Yeah, and there's no question that has an effect. But sometimes it has no effect at all. Sometimes the team with the interim coach does just fine. Um, you never know. All right, hey, one last thing. We didn't, I don't know why I didn't get into this when you're we talking about Alabama and Washington, but Lane Kiffin unfiltered now that he's going to FAU. Uh, it seemed to me, you were there, but it seemed to me from seeing some of the quotes that he is... Um, letting down his guard a little bit and being more the Lane Kiffin we know and love. Yeah, look, his guard is, I think his guard is always kind of down. It's just a matter of how much is he in front of the, uh, how much is he in front of the microphone, you know? So uh, a couple of interesting things. He, he brought up that Kendall Bryles after, you know, Baylor's bowl win last night, Tuesday night, he was on route en route to Atlanta, where they will be interviewing prospective coaches for the FAU staff. Uh, you know, he was asked several times about how how did the school vet Kendall Bryles. Um, you know, he gave answers. I don't know if I would call them vague. I mean, I think some people thought they were vague. The way I would describe them is he's, you know, he basically said, look, we we did our due diligence. We called people at the school. Uh, there was a process involved. Uh you know, I, my point on, on this a little bit was I'm not sure Lane Kiffin is going to sit up on a podium. I'm not sure a lot of coaches would sit up on a podium when they're the head, when they're the offense coordinator in Alabama and go, you know, deep down that road. Like, I think if you're going to get that answer, you're more likely to get that answer from, from the AD at FAU on what they did as opposed to Lane Kiffin going, hey, we talked to people and, you know, I think, I think Lane Kiffin's answer isn't so much just trying to get people to take it at its face value, but just... You know, I don't, I don't, I just don't know of a lot of coaches who want to get into the specifics on that. But that was, those were big issues. Also, he gave a funny answer to uh, one of the questions somebody asked him was, was basically, do you recall the happiest moment Nick Saban had with your offense play calling? And Wayne Kiffin kind of, you know, kind of went through a meandering way and then joked, I don't recall all the ass chewings, uh, but I won't take that part of the process with me. So I also saw where he said, it's been a little controversial that he you know, immediately signed DeAndre Johnson, the former Florida State quarterback. And I saw where he said he wouldn't he, – I don't think he hasn't met him. 
Yeah, you know, he's talked to him, but he hasn't physically met him face to face. You know, we reported this a couple of weeks or a week ago. I mean, that was that recruiting was started with Travis Trickett, who was the old offense coordinator at FAU, and Travis's younger brother Clint, who we all remember as a West Virginia quarterback, was DeAndre Johnson's quarterback coach at East Mississippi. And so they had already been recruiting him before Lane Kiffin was ever hired at FAU. Uh, DeAndre Johnson had met with the president at FAU and the AD. And so they had already vetted him and got to that point. So Lane Kiffin kind of inherited him. Now, sure, if Lane want DeAndre Johnson, they could have tried to back out of that. Uh, where I, And, you know, I was on an outside the lines about this. And where FAU kind of screwed that up, I think, is when they announced that they were signing DeAndre Johnson. I think they should have said at that point, that yes, they in fact the AD and the president both had met DeAndre Johnson and vetted him, uh, you know, thoroughly. As opposed to you know, this is Lane Kiffin's first hire. Like Lane, like it made it sound like Lane was bringing him with him, and that wasn't accurate. So he cleared, you know, I think you know tried to clear that up even further. A couple other you know things that were, you know, if it's if Lane Kiffin's not the coach, I don't think it gets anywhere near the play it did. And he's aware of that. I mean, he's he's probably more aware of that than anybody else is there. And I think now FAU is aware of it. I know he's not the first person. Tom Herman did this a couple years ago to kind of start their new job while still preparing for the playoff. But I wonder how Alabama fans feel to hear that he's going to be interviewing assistant coaches while he's in Atlanta days before the college football playoff semifinal. I think they'll be fine as, as long as they win the game. That's what if they I'm lose, saying. oof. Um, I do remember, you know, Tom's uh, SID had handed him a hat because they were the game was in Texas and it was a Houston hat and the title game. And you know, look, I remember when USC crushed Oklahoma in the Orange Bowl. Ed Ogeron was still the D line coach at USC, and I remember he had his Ole Miss like leather bag that he was carrying around with him. And when he was ready to shift to that job, I, it's I think it's more common than people probably realize the fact that it's Lane Kiffin though you know, makes it a little more attention grabbing. Right. Well, you've still got media day to go. You've still got more access with him. So I expect some more greatest hits to come. And then certainly if they win the game, he's got to speak again at national championship media day. So plenty more Lane Kiffin moments to come. I have a feeling. Awesome. Thank you guys for hanging in there uh, while we work around our various travel schedules and whatnot. Uh, This will be our only podcast leading into the playoff, but we will come back. I think we should be able to do our regular two next week once the national championship game is determined. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, and email us at theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.